I went through several agencies very quickly and I saw the whole gamut of bilateral aid, bilateral agencies, multilateral in terms of the UN, and then some really supposed to be good INGOs. And I just felt the structures were very, very flawed and came to a conclusion that you cannot really do good work from flawed structures. And so Tewa emerged out of that. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in to a series of episodes where we speak with activists, academics, artists, and writers to contextualize international development and humanitarian aid within broader historical and global power dynamics and socioeconomic systems that have been shaped and reshaped over time. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Our guest today is Rita Thapa. Rita is the founder of Tewa, the innovative philanthropic Nepal Women's Fund, and Nagarik Awaz, an NGO engaged in conflict transformation and peacebuilding. Rita has over 35 years of experience as a feminist educator and a community activist in Nepal and internationally. She is also the former chair of the executive board of the Global Fund for Women and former vice chair of the executive board of the Urgent Action Fund. She currently serves as chair of the executive board of the Global Fund for Community Foundations. Rita was named an Ashoka Fellow in 1998, was Dame Nita Barrow Distinguished Visitor at the University of Toronto in 2002, and in 2005, she was included in the 1000 Women for Peace nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. Rita, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome, Safa. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. To begin with, maybe you could just share a bit with us about your background or your upbringing or what led you to become a feminist activist and want to work in community development. Yes, so I can begin by saying that being born in Nepal, in Kashmandu actually, which is the capital city, and lived all my life here. I, being born a woman in a Hindu, patriarchal, but a fairly privileged family, I didn't really understand the gendered politics until much later when I got married quite early when I was 18 and in a very powerfully political, patriarchal family. And I began to identify that those discriminations, very subtle, did exist early on because there were very defined roles for women and for men. And therefore, how much ever privilege you came into, you were still, there were subtle things like you can't ride a bicycle, you can't ride a horse, you can't go out on the streets by yourself and things like that, rules that didn't apply to men and boys. And then later on, when I was in this married household joint family, I got to learn so much more about the dynamics 
gender dynamics especially. But then my husband died some 17 years after marriage. I had three children, so a Hindu widow. And, uh, you know, I needed to work for money. And luckily in Nepal at that time, people offered me jobs with the aid agencies. And I just had to take up a job. So it was very convenient. And I moved into development world. So I worked with several aid agencies, Canadians, uh, the Germans, uh, Oxfam, and the UN Women at that time, UNIFEB. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you worked with a variety of agencies, aid agencies. Could you tell us a bit about what you observed in those experiences or what were some of the ethical issues you faced that actually made you question the work they were doing and want to establish Tewa as an alternative? Yes. So I think that's the thing, you know, in my first job with the Canadians, I quit after nine months. and. I was lucky to, again, be offered a job very quickly, but I just, I went with a very fresh eye and no training as such into this role, other than my own activism from early on in the field of women, because wherever I identified gaps for women, I tried to fill that in. And then when I left, I not only did I leave, but all the four key staffs left because I said, you guys are going to just, I mean, this is not the kind of development that we all need to be doing because the hierarchies are so big and there is no communication and but this, you, you need to understand, was about 30 plus years back. So what I saw was one, I mean, to give you an example, the Canada Fund, I was overseeing the Women's Initiative Fund. But the Canada Fund that need to be passed by a board in Delhi, where the High Commission is, I mean, the immigration officer and all these kind of people are staying around the table and are asking, so how is it uh, like safe drinking water? They have no idea of the context where this proposal is written in, in rural Nepal. They have no thinking that somebody who's working for the same organization will do their best to ensure that all those questions are met and that we are confident as program people recruited by the Canadian agency take the proposal. So I said, there's no trust. And with such a lack of trust and such established hierarchies that are never going to be broken through, it's not going to work for me. So. And you also mentioned that there was a kind of a culture of aid dependency, which is something that Tewa challenged. 
Yes, that's the other thing in Nepal. Nepal was going through its own huge political. Since 1951, Nepal opened to the outer world for the first time. And the aid agencies came here. It was a haven. And I think early on in 1954 or so, I'm not quite sure about that. The foreign aid was a big thing here. On top of that, we had many political transitions and the whole machinery eventually became very politicized as well, which means there were all the, you know, so the Nepali politicians used that also as a way to build their constituencies, not directly, but through their henchmen, I can say. So, you know, with all the nepotism and all the psychopancy and old traditional culture that was just opening up and being really new to this whole thing, not having enough transitional plannings, but where power and attaining power was the key among the politicians. So, you know, it was, uh, yeah, went through many, many transitions, uh, followed by the 10-year-long armed conflict and the post-transition period. We've gone through some very, very rapid transitions in a very short span of time. Mm-hmm, right. And in that context, you, you eventually had this idea and this vision for Tewa. Can you share how did you come up with the idea and what was the initial kind of vision that you had for the the work that Tewa could do? So I went through several aid agencies very quickly and I saw the whole gamut of bilateral aid, bilateral agencies, multilateral in terms of the UN and then some really supposed to be good INGOs like Oxfam, for instance. And I just felt the structures were very, very flawed and came to a conclusion that you cannot really do good work from flawed structures. But the other side of it was because Nepal was going through all these transitions, political transitions as well, women were really emerging out into the outside domain or the political economic domain. And women had no access to resources, although development aid at the time intended women to have access to those monies. But because, you know, they couldn't write a proposal in English, the donors didn't go down that far to the rural areas in those days. So women had very little access to support. And I felt it was really important to help them stay organized so that they could gain more political visibility and voice. And so Tewa emerged out of that. And the other thing that was really affecting me was that through my own experience of being widowed, I needed to observe annual death rituals for my husband. But after the second year, I did nothing of the sort because for the first year, I was in a whole year of mourning. 
traditional mourning, which means really staying housebound, eating pure food and all the likes of it. But after that, I decided I wouldn't do anything because I was working. I wouldn't have the time to engage with my own intimate community of family. So when I didn't do that, it made me think, oh my goodness. I mean, we had so much philanthropy that was structured within the religious and the cultural practices. And if I was not doing that, there were a lot of people who were also beginning to be, you know, the whole urbanization and modernization process that is taking place throughout the world, but certainly in Nepal as well at the time, wouldn't allow for us to practice traditional forms of philanthropy through religious and cultural giving. So where are we giving back to the community? So I felt that I needed to practice this myself and ensure that we just didn't get sucked into consumeristic lifestyles, but that we practiced it in a scenario where we could actually contribute to the environment, to women or to education or to health. So that's how Teva was born. I was on the board of the Global Fund for Women. I was very influenced also by women there who were philanthropists and who had that equity and justice very big on their minds and their hands. So it was very easy for me because that's exactly how I was uh, experiencing my life as well. And so it was a natural psyche for me to found Tewa. So Tewa uses this kind of alternative financial model, which involves fundraising from local community members, yes. local actors. Could you speak to that strategy? And maybe also, what were some of the challenges you faced in terms of fundraising, especially maybe in the early years? Yes. Absolutely, Sapa, because I think one thing I need to mention is that for a Hindu widow, when Nepal kept uh, deteriorating in terms of political stability and therefore economically, it was a very big thing that I chose to quit my job with Unifem at the time after working there three years and do Tewa, but I was also thinking of running away from the country and so I had applied to the Massey University because just being widowed and living in Kashmandu at that time wasn't the easiest thing. And, you know, so I had, as you would say, these laddus in both hands. But I was speaking at a panel in Wairu, Beijing, and talking on funding our future. And as I was putting my thoughts together for this talk, the idea of Tewa, I conceived it. And soon as I came back, I called my uh, supervisor, the regional advisor for UNIFEM, who was based in New Delhi at the time, and said that I would leave my job. So I wanted to establish Tewa in a way whereby everything that I saw was not really right 
when I was working with these a gamut of aid agencies, I thought so structurally, for instance, like it's a very convoluted environment, even now. I ensured that our salaries were aligned with government salaries, for instance. So that didn't mean that you might get the best of people, which were really little at that time. I remember the first program office I recruited, we paid him $100 a month because that is what the section officer got. And, you know, we ate together. So also uh, class, caste, diversity issues were very, very big here eating together, sitting together. I invested a lot of time and energy in team building, in leveling the field, let me say, right at the beginning so that we could get all together, you know, that we could end up being a team, that we could all own it in the same way. And I think just the practices of what you say, like transparency, accountability, respectful behavior, because your grantees who came from rural Nepal, we sat on the floor, we put floor cushions, we didn't have any furnitures. I mean, there are so many stories, but like, for instance, Ford Foundation, who got to know of us and came to support us looked at my office and said, you know, you need a better office and maybe we can give you a car. I said, no way. I mean, we have to deal every day with our grantees and all kinds of partners. So this way, and then, yes, like you said, we have many, many, many individual Nepali donors, primarily individual Nepali donors, starting with ourselves. I think even now, everyone in Tewa is a donor, the staff included. And so, you know, all these things set the tone. And I think uh, that kind of consistent behavior, it's about building trust and ownership. I think primarily it's about building trust and ownership. Yes, very important. So you speak about kind of overcoming any possible hierarchies within your own staff, within your own group, but also in relationship to your grantees and the communities you are working in. Absolutely. I was just thinking, you know, how in the whole ecosystem of community development work, there are different stakeholders. For example, you have local NGOs, but you have government counterparts, you have private sector people, you have international partners. In your work, a lot of times you've focused on working directly with civil society, community groups, grassroots partners. Can you speak to some of the ways in which you kind of were able to create partnerships that were more lateral with other organizations that you were working with in partnership? Yes, Safa, the kind of politics within development aid here, I chose not to take money from aid agencies here for Tewa because I didn't want to waste the time, which I knew I would have to, in writing proposals. I wanted to make a leadership transition. Actually, within five years, I did it in five years, nine months straight, which is still a record time for getting everything going. 
foreign agencies development or aid agencies here, I didn't really interact with them. How I was able to do this was for grant making, we raised every penny from within Nepal and we gave every penny of that to the grantee groups. So what we raised, we gave. But for running the organizations, we were very frugal in those days. We drank only black tea. We cooked a little meal of a, a simple Nepali food and we ate all together in the office. But still, the running cost, I worked voluntarily for the initial years. And those monies came to us from the feminist funds and feminist philanthropists. So because of that, I didn't have to worry about how I was going to run the organization. But working with local partners, we already, yes, worked with not aid agencies, but with the local community organizations who are registered and in relation with that, Nepal was still centrally controlled, central government, but still with related government agencies because of the organizations we supported, funded. We did need to work with them sometimes and be in communications. And that was okay because we invested a good deal of time into having good communications. Although in those days, the smartphone or emails, that was not very. But, you know, using phone or really making visits, when we went for monitoring visits, we would go and meet the chief district officer as well. So in this way, the little that we needed to interact with them was fine. Today, I know Tewa works much more closely with the local governments wherever they are established. You mentioned that you had made this conscious choice to transition out of the leadership at Tewa, even though you are the founder. Could you speak to that, that choice and why that was very important to you? Yes, Safa, because from my experience in Nepal, maybe it's almost in many places still the same. The founders are very loath to leave the organizations, but I think there isn't enough investment on second line leadership. And I was absolutely clear that I want to and I have to. I built everything around it. And luckily, I was able to put an endowment in place and build that much ownership and trust for the work because everything was very transparent. I didn't have my nieces and nephews and children work for the organization in any way. So, you know, everybody could own it. So I think that was very useful in being able to make that transition. It was really important. Otherwise, it couldn't be widely owned if I was always there. So even structurally, the ideas of community ownership and transparency and working together, that's reflected in the way that the organization is created and structured. 
Yes, throughout, and that I'm so pleased. Tewa is now finishing its 25th year this year, and it continues to be so. And I think today it makes grants in 70 out of 77 districts, some of which are really very high mountainous areas, women's organization. They are more entrepreneurial, like the Everest region. So, you know, it's a whole different story, but it's almost, it makes grants throughout Nepal and it's very well known and I think respected as far as I know. So it's because of that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So you've also written a bit about how your Buddhist practice has supported you in your, your work. Could you share a bit about how that has helped you throughout your work, maybe overcoming any of the challenges you face or just keeping your motivation going? Mm, thank you, Safa. That's a very interesting question and one that is very dear to my heart and always eager to share about that. And uh, yes, so I'm a born Hindu. I was born in a Hindu family. But when my husband died, and especially two years after, when he died, I was in shock because he died suddenly. And then I jumped straight into work. So I didn't have much processing. And I had three children. So it was a lot. But uh, when my mother-in-law died two years after he did, all the traditional practices, rituals that came with it, I just couldn't take it in. And I felt it was very wrong. Like widows can only wear yellow tikka, can only wear dull colors, not red, nothing vibrant. And, you know, those kind of things. So everything was so discriminatory in that. And I had this big spiritual search. So uh, luckily, a friend who was a Buddhist practitioner, very well known, he connected me. He took me to my teacher, Chokinima Rinpoche, for the first time. And I was totally zapped because... Although I was born in Kashmandu, I had never been to the White Monastery. I didn't know what they were. And, you know, but I felt when I, uh, he gave me a blessing, my friend just said, you know, she's gone through some tragedies recently and she'd like your blessing. I didn't feel much at the time. I was just so stoned kind of by everything there. But after a few days, I felt that the knot that had formed in my stomach just dissipated and I felt light and I connected that with the blessing I received. And so I just felt I had come home. I went back. I took refuge. And Buddhism, although I hardly understood it, I was already 35. 36 at that time. But the teachings of compassion and ego cutting were of great help to me because on one hand, as you keep achieving things and you, you know, so like it was really breaking new grounds with Tewa in Nepal. Everybody said, you can't do it. I took a huge plunge. So 
doing something like that can make you feel pretty big and it's very, very important to ground yourself. And I think those teachings, both of being compassionate, practicing compassion, and also of ego cutting have been my lifelong, I think, the most valuable lessons I've learned. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. That's so wonderful. You've done so many things from an early age in terms of challenging hierarchies, challenging patriarchy, questioning the different ways in which gender dynamics, caste dynamics, class dynamics play out. Was there a particular moment or particular teaching where you thought, okay, like now I'm a feminist or now I'm committing myself to this work? Or was this just something that you just were always doing in a way without really labeling it as, oh, this is a a feminist commitment or I'm a feminist? Yeah, I think it was early on when I was in Oxfam. I remember this uh, famous feminist, Kamla Bahasin, South Asian feminist. She's from India. She was running a thematic workshop and she asked us a question, who of you are feminists? And among all these men and women who are all feminists, I would say, hardly like out of 25, hardly six of us raised our hands. And I was one of them. And I don't know why. I just always felt, you know, I've seen the gaps I know discriminations lie even in most privileged places because of women's stereotypical roles and multiple roles. And we need to change that. So I would do whatever I could from my small, you know, capabilities at areas. And therefore I considered my, so I'm doing something to change that to make us more equitable and therefore just. And uh, so I considered myself a feminist very early on. But I think although that word I was not so, I wasn't using it earlier, I feel I always was feminist in that know you mentioned Kamla Basin and we had the pleasure to speak with her on the podcast last year. How has that type of regional feminist solidarity or that community, that network, those kind of relationships and friendships, how have they supported you or impacted your work or your life? Absolutely. That's our lifeline, I would say, collectively, because it's so difficult to find people who think alike and who are committed to change year after year after year. And Kamala has been such a force in paving the path for us and in standing so strong and tall on that path, uniting the entire South Asia region. I mean, not just she, but so many others with her, and many of them are very, very dear friends in all these countries. So interestingly, Safa, Nepal has never been colonized. So our history and even my history is very different from that. I've never been a party political activist. I mean, I don't cater to one or the other political ideology. 
But I think the ideology of justice and equity and, you know, all the more humane sort of, I cater to that. But Kamla and all have worked together in many different ways. But what they have gathered, the knowledge that has been gathered in the region and all the amazing work many of my colleagues South Asian region have done has been inspiring because when you're on this path, you are sort of alone and often you're ostracized within your own communities because you are so ridiculous. In my class, I shouldn't have done the work I did. I wouldn't have to. I could have just stayed a privileged socialite. I don't know what you call them. And I think when you do that, you pretty much are alone. And I think you have these sort of network and these people you can be inspired from that keeps your fire burning. So yes, very, very valuable. Yes, absolutely. So after your your time with Tewa, you also founded the NGO Nagarik Awaz with the intention of doing peace-building work in the context of conflict in Nepal between the government and Maoist insurgents. Could you tell us why you felt compelled to do that work and work with victims of violence, especially women? Oh dear, Safa, <laughs> it goes on. You know, if you live in Nepal, you can't help it, I guess. But the more important thing is like with your spiritual practice, the path is the most important thing I I have learned. And therefore doing Tewa, and I was saying, oh, good, Rita, you did it. And here's your time. You need a little rest because you're a burnt out activist. You've really achieved all that you said you would and more. And I was thinking that I needed a break and I had my life's one of the biggest lessons again, because even just my formal day of transition, a handing over was not over and the palace massacre happened and violence just escalated. And I knew the women would suffer additionally and different. I mean, that's easy to understand, just simple logic. And I just couldn't just wait and watch the whole house burning. So I jumped into founding another organization because I pulled together a group of people and thought somebody else would take the leadership. But, uh, you know, nobody was ready. And um, working in conflict is a very risky thing. It has security hazards, as you would know. So, (laughs) you know. I had to sort of jump in. But then I learned this whole other dimension of doing peace building work. And for that, I'm grateful too. Could you tell us about maybe some of the the goals of that work and how it was to kind of negotiate and be involved in kind of a very political or tense environment? So development work, I understood, I had done. Uh, a great deal. I had learned 
something I studied a little bit of development and gender in Sussex. Most of us in development work, I saw, we equate what we do with jobs. I mean, jobs is secondary. It's the work. You are trying to change people's lives for better. And, oh my God, that's a very big responsibility. And to cut across class, caste, hierarchies, all kinds of barriers, and to really be able to build trust and to build on assets that exist with people in the local communities. Also, given the north-south dynamics, how you consider, you equate everything only in terms of money, where you think that this is a poor country, this is a rich country. I think COVID is unraveling a lot of that now, the way we have defined wealth and richness. And I think those were the kind of things that enabled me to learn along the way. So we began by uh, having forums where all kinds of people came, the Maoists came, and very soon got to be working with all sides of political parties, the Maoists, the, not government so much initially. And, but, you know, keeping that balance being authentic. I think that was the most, holding the balance and being authentic. and reaching out where help was needed. I think that's what got us learning about the entire peace building work. And we decided to focus on youths because it's like in Nepali, we have a proverb that says, save seeds in times of famine. And in war, I felt we needed to save youths. Somewhere you had mentioned how Times of conflict, times of war, or other kind of crisis situations are a time where women's traditional roles have a potential to be overcome or changed. And now, as you said, we're living in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, which is is in a crisis in itself. It has so many different impacts, and it's disproportionately impacting women in negative ways. What are your thoughts about? You know, the current time that we're living in, especially in relationship to maybe the role of women? Yes, that's a great question, Safa, because right now, for almost the past two years, I have been very engaged in uh, holding together a group called the Intergenerational Feminist Forum. And through that, even tomorrow, I have a meeting at home, although that social distancing and all that is happening here in a big way. A small meeting, group of us are coming together to think about how can we strategize? Because for 25 years and more, we have built organizations, we've mobilized women, some men included, but we have yet to see how we can ride above that because we've been very divided along party political lines, identity politics was played out in a big way during the 
armed conflict, so along the lines of identity politics and donor politics, maybe not intentionally, but if you give grants to, so, you know, it's in a very competitive environment that our organizations have been surviving. And if we are now, if we can come beyond that, trust, care, show love, and strengthen ourselves because the world that's in front of us will be largely led by women, I feel. There's no choice. And therefore, we have to ensure how women can hold on to their strengths. They are the strongest species, even biologically, it's been proven. So I think that's where we are going to invest now our time and energies to see how we can provide necessary safety nets across the board, as well as provide the organizing skills that's needed in this new environment. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this kind of moment we're in with the rise of polarization in politics and discriminatory policies and all these party policy lines. And I think somewhere you had mentioned that you initially had had an idea of starting kind of a political party yourself, but that there wasn't much support for that idea. When you think about that idea now, what are your thoughts about, you know, what are the, I guess, the positives of working through political organizing rather than uh, community organizing, activist organizing, feminist organizing? Oh, no, no, not me, but many women, my colleagues earlier, many years back, thought they should have a political women's party. That never came to be. But personally, I have never had a political interest because I think political party, political work, I'm not saying it's a wonderful piece of work to be in leadership. But this whole thing about leadership and how leadership is to serve a much larger constituency and carries with it great responsibility is, I think, something that the world, I don't even want to call them leaders, whoever are in the chairs throughout the world, with a few exceptions, uh, is dismal. I mean, it is so sad that there is no respect anymore for that. However, I mean, anybody who is running a good government, I don't think they need people from their party to do pieces of work where they are skilled human resources from independent constituencies. And I think they can always access to that. But the intention is not that. So it's not a conducive environment and you will be this one person battling against a huge, very faulty structure and that just will never work, no suffer. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the Intergenerational Feminist Forum and coming together amongst women of different ages and different backgrounds. Would you say that over the years, have your your motivations changed at all? Or have your thoughts or feelings about this work changed in any way? 
Not at all, but I just feel that both my organizations are in a good place. I'm very, very lucky despite Nepal's transitions. I am helping Nagarikabas in building a peace center because Teva already has a physical space it can be proud of. But I thought I could use the credibility, the trust, and the respect that I have now earned in helping pull together. At least I can do my bit. And if something works, because these are, again, very, very challenging and very difficult times. Things are only going to get much more harder before they can get better. I think over several years, especially in a hugely transitioning country like Nepal, where the, the state structure has been like eaten by termites from the inside over so many years. So things will be very difficult for us here. And if I can do a little bit along with all my colleagues, I mean, nobody can do this kind of thing alone. But if I can be a little blue, a little sort of a light, you know, to hold something together and bring something to fruition that's bigger than ourselves, then uh, again, I will have to be very, very grateful to whoever, why I'm on this earth. Over your career, or maybe not just only your work, also in your life, have there been someone or a, f- a few people who you would say are some of your biggest teachers in terms of what they shared with you, or maybe just themselves, how they behave, that has stuck with you over the years and that has been a source of inspiration for you? I would say that, yes, of course, Safa, all the people who went ahead of me in one or the other way because each one's context is different and their paths different. I learned from everyone, you know, all these teachers all along your way in the uh, women's movement, our forerunners, and not just forerunners, you know, those who come behind us. They are amazing. They sometimes teach us more then uh, we could ever sort of learn ourselves. So I'm extremely inspired by by the youth and, and the young ones. I mean, Greta Thunberg <laughs> inspires me no end, you know. Uh, this Alicia something, this food activist, seven-year-old, she inspires me. I don't even know where she is from. These kind of people... In Nepal, too, there are so many. But I think my gurus, my spiritual teachers, just the way they live their life, that's very inspirational because they give without the asking and so unconditionally, constantly to help us. And I feel that in itself is a huge inspiration the way they live their lives. And then, of course, the life, your path itself becomes your biggest teacher as it unfolds. You know, when you shared that, it reminded me that when Kamla was on the podcast and we spoke with her, she was sharing about the importance of really 
living and embodying the values that you believe in and the the kind of work that you're trying to do. So I think that really resonates in terms of what you said about embodying the values that you have every day in your life in just the way you live. It doesn't have to be in the way you work, also in the way you live. Yes, being authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to speak with you, learn from your experiences. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Safa. Thank you. Thank you also to our listeners. We invite you to join in on the conversation. You can do this by number one, sending us a short voice message, sharing a specific ethical issue you faced in your work. You can visit our website and hit the send us a voice message button for more details on how to do that. Or number two, you can email us a short letter to your younger self sharing what you wish you had known when you first started working in this sector or tips about some of the things you have learned over the years. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter, listening and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcast player, and following us on social media. On our website, you can find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.